Good morning, church. It's good to see more of you today. We're slowly returning to church, and it's great to see more of you. Some of you, this is your first time back. Welcome back. Uh, We missed you the last couple of weeks. And uh, if you're still at home, uh, we uh, long for the day to see you as well, to gather with us here. If you're downstairs, uh, thank you for uh, patiently enduring and persevering as well uh, during this time as you um, worship with us um, downstairs. Um, so I, just a, a caveat here, um, I, I, I don't typically preach from these things. Um, I typically just preach from paper, like from, from notes. Um, but uh, my printer at home was broken this morning, and the printer at church was broken. And so Matt was gracious to allow me to use his iPad this morning. And so um, hopefully that won't be a distraction. Um, but uh, if, if things kind of go crazy up here, just extend some grace to me, okay? So this will be interesting. A couple weeks ago, um, I mentioned that uh, I had been conflicted about whether to scrap the sermon that I had prepared in order to address what was going on in our country at that time. And um, on that Sunday, it was just too fresh, it was too raw, and to be quite honest, I wasn't ready. Um, I was out of the pulpit last week, um, and Matt delivered a great sermon on Genesis 30, but this Sunday... I feel duty-bound, I feel duty-bound as a pastor to address what's going on in our country from a biblical perspective. My trepidation here, I, I, I feel completely inadequate to address this this morning, and my trepidation at this comes from primarily two sources. Number one, I want to be true to God's Word. I don't want to say anything other than what God's Word says. I want to be anchored to the text. My calling as a pastor, as a preacher of God's Word, is not to give you my opinion, but to give you God's Word as it's laid out in His Scriptures. You don't need to hear from me. You need to hear from God. We need to hear from God. And God has spoken. My job is to deliver to you what God says in his word. Not only so that we can understand it, but so that we can apply it to our lives. But in the application of God's word, I'm also called upon to be an exegete, not just of his word, but of our culture, to understand what is going on in and around us. There's always only one meaning to the text, but there are many times a myriad of applications to the text and ways that the text and that meaning of the text can be applied to our lives. And in order for me to offer any applications then I need to know and understand not just the culture, but I need to know and understand you, our audience here at New Branch. And therein lies the second source of my trepidation. And that is, 
my awareness that perhaps even in this room, there are a myriad of opinions about how to think about what is going on in our country today. What to emphasize, what not to emphasize, and how to respond to it. Addressing this kind of controversial topic, especially at a time where we are navigating as a church differing opinions about how to respond to a global pandemic. Now addressing this controversial topic on top of that makes me concerned for our unity. Now when I refer to this topic as controversial, I am not referring to the unjust murder of a man named George Floyd in Minneapolis three weeks ago. That's not controversial. I think we can all agree that nobody is arguing whether or not that was justified. No, nobody is arguing that Derek Chauvin, the, the man who put his neck, put his knee on the neck of George Floyd until he could not breathe, Nobody is arguing that he is justified in that and that he shouldn't lose his job and be tried for murder. That's not controversial. But pretty much everything else that has happened surrounding this is wrought with controversy. This issue is filled with all kinds of landmines. And I'll be honest. I have an unhealthy fear this morning of stepping on some of those landmines. But mostly that fear stems from the fact that I know that we've got folks in our church that are on different sides of some of these landmines. In this very room, perhaps. And I'm concerned about us still liking one another and loving one another and preserving our unity as a church. But here's the thing. Some things are worth wading into even if it puts that unity at risk. And this is one of those times. I believe this is a time when the church must speak with clarity and boldness. We must say what God's word says and we must not equivocate on that. We can disagree about some of the implications. We can disagree and have differing opinions about some of the solutions that we might come up with and how we address racial injustice. But we must be clear about what God's word says about all this. I believe this is a time in our country that is a golden opportunity for the church to speak with clarity about the gospel that is our only hope. We must not squander it. Many of you know that the theme verse that we've adopted over the last several summers for our Serve Decula summer outreach is Jeremiah 29.7, which says, um, where, where God says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God tells the Israelites who are in exile in Babylon to seek the welfare of the city 
to which I have sent you into exile and prayed to the Lord on its behalf. Well, church, we are God's people in exile today. And we are to seek the welfare of this land and this city to which we have been sent. And right now, our land is hurting. And the people of this land and this city are in turmoil. And if ever there was a time for us to seek the welfare of the city, it is now. And so I'm going to take this morning and Lord willing next week to try to unpack some of the implications of the gospel with respect to social, or excuse me, racial injustice. I'm going to try to navigate very carefully the landmines that this topic is filled with, but rest assured, I'm probably going to step on some. And when I do, I'm just going to ask you for grace. Typically, when we preach, we're preaching from a particular passage of Scripture. And we're going to do that next week on this particular topic. But this morning is going to be more of a systematic theology. We're going to be in a number of different places in Scripture this morning as we seek to unpack some of these implications. What I want to try to do this morning is to try to understand what has been happening in our country, at least over the last three weeks, from a biblical perspective. And because, as we've said many, many times, the overarching story of Scripture, of the Bible, the meta-narrative of Scripture is the gospel, then we will seek to understand what's been happening in our country through the lens of the gospel. So what is the gospel? The gospel can be summarized by four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In creation, we learn that a holy and gracious, all-powerful, and all-knowing God created everything, including mankind, and that at the end of his creation, all was good, even mankind. Mankind in the garden enjoyed a perfect relationship with his creator, unhindered by sin and disobedience. But then in the fall, we learn that man chose to disobey God. And so then what was good, what had been good, is no longer good. What was good is now under a curse, both creation and mankind himself. Now, because man is sinful, he cannot be in God's presence ever again in this life or the next. And furthermore, every human is now born into this sin. And so we are, all of us, because of the fall, infected with this curse, the curse of sin. But here's the thing, God knew that would happen. Because he's all-knowing, right? He's omniscient, he's sovereign, He knew that man would sin against him and be hopelessly lost and then cursed because of sin, cursed with sin and death. But he had a plan to break the curse of sin from the very beginning, and that plan was redemption. So by an act of sovereign grace, God sends his son to earth, 
to put on flesh and become one of us. And this Jesus did what we never could, which is to live perfectly, righteously, achieving the righteousness that we never could, to to live without sin. And then he went to the cross to be a substitutionary sacrifice for us in our place, dying the death that we deserve, the death that we owe, and then rising from the grave to break the curse of sin and death for all those who would trust in him alone. But the good news of the gospel doesn't stop there because then there's restoration. And this is where God will ultimately and finally end the curse and reign of sin and death forever. Not just for us, but for creation as well. And not just that we are saved from sin's penalty, but where we are saved ultimately from sin's power and presence. This restoration that the Bible speaks of is the, is the new heaven and the new earth of the final state. And as we see the Bible portray what that restoration will look like, as we sang about, he's making all things new. It looks very similar to what we see in the original creation in the beginning before the fall of man and before the curse of sin had infected mankind and everything. That's the gospel. That is the the, the story of the Bible in a nutshell. No matter where we are in Scripture, everything falls within the framework of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Everything. Even the book that we're looking at right now, Genesis, we're seeing effects of the fall, are we not? Over and over and over again. Every part of Scripture falls within that framework. But not only is this a way for us to understand the Bible, but it's also a way for us to understand the world around us. And not just to understand it, but to offer it hope. So, so those, are, those are the two overarching takeaways that, that I want us to flesh out this morning. Number one, that the gospel helps to explain racial injustice. It helps us understand why it exists, but it also is the only ultimate hope in the face of it. So let's try to look at what's been happening the last three weeks in our country through this lens of the gospel. In the creation story, one of the things that we're told before God creates man, mankind, he gets together as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all there. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. He, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, The Trinity get together and they have a little conference. And they say this in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then when you get to the New Testament, you look at Acts chapter 17, we're told that all of us, all of mankind is created after Adam. We all are created from Adam. And so we have this shared ancestry in Adam who is made in the image of God. And so we may have different skin colors, but we're all family. This this fundamental truth should inform every single discussion about racism. That every person, not animals, but every human being, regardless of skin color, is made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. And this means that we, as humans, made in the image of God, we have intrinsic value and worth. Not because of the kind of person that they are, not because of the kind of life that they live, and not because of what they look like on the inside or the outside, but simply because they are a human being They have intrinsic value and worth because they are made in the image of God. Church, George Floyd bore the image of God, the imago Dei. He bore in his personhood the image of our creator. And because of that, his life had intrinsic value and worth. You know, there's another way to say that his life had intrinsic value and worth. And that is to say that his life mattered. I know that Black Lives Matter, church, has become a slogan for an organization that espouses beliefs and values that are antithetical to the gospel. Contrary to God's word. And so there is an understandable and reasonable hesitancy to align ourselves with an organization like that. But church, can I just tell you that based on the truth of God's word, that black lives do matter? Because black people and brown people, and white people, and every other color in between are made in the image of God. And because of that, they have intrinsic value and worth. They matter. That's creation. But we also see this truth articulated in the restoration. Remember how I said that the restoration will look a lot like the garden before the curse of sin and the fall. Well, not only do we see that black lives have intrinsic value and worth because of how God creates us in his image, but we also see that black and white and brown and every other color in between will be represented in this final state, in the restoration of all things. Listen to another passage out of Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. When John is on the island of Patmos, exiled, 
And he is given the privilege of seeing a vision of the final state when, when God will make all things new. The new heaven and the new earth, as we read about in another part of Revelation. Here's what he said in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know what the Greek word for nations is there? Ethnos. It's the same word that we see in our great commission to make disciples of all nations. Pantata ethne. It's talking about ethno-linguistic peoples or ethnicities. It's the word from which we get our English word, ethnicity. You can go look up the Joshua Project that chronicles the, the people groups throughout the world. And for the United States of America, it lists over 400 people groups that are represented in our country. But the top three are Anglo-American, African-American, and Latino-American. And according to Revelation chapter 7, church, each of them will be represented in that final state. A great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all nations and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You know, white supremacists, or for that matter, racists of any flavor, would not like heaven. Heaven would be hell for a racist. Surrounded around the throne of Jesus, we will gather our voices with people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And we will stand before the throne together and we will cry out in unity, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so any person or system or policy that elevates one race over another or that suppresses or oppresses a particular race is a person, system, or policy that is antithetical to the gospel and has rejected this fundamental truth of God's word that all persons, all humanity, are created in the image of God and therefore matter just as much as any other. Friend, this is why we protect the life of the unborn. Abortion is so atrocious precisely because that baby, we believe, according to God's word, is made in the image of God and therefore has intrinsic value and worth. And it matters. Now, I'm not at all trying to compare the relative evil of racism to the evil of abortion. But I am saying that fundamentally that the logic that we use to fight one 
ought to be the logic that we use to fight the other. And the fact that there are racist people, policies, systems in our country, that can only be explained by the fall. You see, the lens of the gospel helps us to understand how racism can even exist in the first place. Why? Because people reject God and his truth. Because people reject that all people, literally all people, are made in the image of God and therefore have intrinsic value and worth and they matter. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the effect of the fall on humanity. And let's just let's put a big arm around not just humanity, but ourselves as well here as we hear this. Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Friend, if that's what's in the human heart, then of course, of course there's racism. If this is what resides in the human heart, then this explains every single instance of human suffering and oppression at the hands of mankind. Whether it's domestic abuse or criminal violence or police brutality or even rioting and looting, all of this is explained by the fall. By the curse of sin that we're all under. And this includes the sin of racism and racial injustice. Now, if I haven't already, let me briefly step on some toes. This might be one of those landmines. If you're a white person, and you think that there's no such thing as racism in America today, or no such thing as systemic racism in our structures and policies. May I humbly and boldly just remind you that both your heart and mine is also stained by this curse of sin. And friend, we can't see very well through stained glass. If what Paul says is true about the human heart, and it is, And if what he says is true about the human heart is also true of my heart, then how can I trust my own perspective of what it's like to live as a black man in America? My experience of life in America as a member of the majority race is different from the experience of life in America for members of a minority race. It's just different. 
And, and, and because that's the case, then perhaps I'm not the best arbiter of whether or not racism still exists in this country. Or to what extent it exists. Or certainly what it feels like to endure it and to live under it. Because I just don't know. And I can't know. Now that doesn't mean I need to apologize for being white. This is not about feeling guilt or shame because of my skin color. It's not. It just means that a black person is going to know what it's like to live as a black person in America, and I never will. So maybe in order for me to have a clearer picture of what my brother is going through and have empathy for his journey, I need to set aside my preconceived ideas of what I think his journey is like and sit down with him and listen to him and learn. Let me just put it this way. If systemic racism does still exist in America today, and I believe that it does, but if it does, then not only is racism explained by the fall, but our denial of its existence is likewise explained by the fall. One other thing that I want to address about the fall before we move on is protesting and rioting. That's a part of what we're seeing. Church, they're not the same. Protesting is standing up for what is true and right. And rioting and looting is criminal and violence. Protesting is affirming the account of creation, that all people are created in the image of God and therefore have intrinsic value and worth. And and, and everyone who's protesting may not be saying that, that may not be their motive, but the heart behind it, that's it. To protest racial injustice is affirming the account of creation in that regard. While rioting and looting is simply living out the reality of the account of the fall. And so while we should respect, encourage, and even join together those who protest against social injustice, because this is, that's affirming what is right and true, at the same time, we cannot affirm and we cannot support the violence and rioting that we have seen on our city's streets over the last three weeks. That kind of behavior, like racism itself, can only truly be understood in light of the fall and the curse of sin. But while we cannot affirm it or support it, I think we should try to understand it. Let me share with you an analogy. Kids, close your ears. Mom and Dad can explain this to you later. If you had a son that was constantly picked on in school by older kids, a son day after day, week after week, month after month, was bullied and teased by older kids, and you as a parent were trying to address it by talking with the teachers and administrators and coming up with a plan, but it just kept happening. Day after day, week after week, 
month after month, until one day you get a call from the principal telling you that your son was caught fighting and had busted the lip of one of the older kids. Now I know that all of us would discipline our son because that's wrong and that's unacceptable. But friend, if your sin nature is in any way similar to mine, there would be part of you that said, yes, finally, they got what they deserve. And even that kind of visceral reaction is wrong and unacceptable. And and that itself is a manifestation of the fall and the curse of sin. But perhaps it helps us to understand what's happening. Church, for nearly 350 years, black people in our country have either been enslaved as in humans owning other humans, and not just humans owning humans, but humans owning other humans inhumanely. Or denied basic human rights, or discriminated against, first formally and officially and legally through Jim Crow laws. But then, after the Civil Rights Movement, informally and unofficially. See, the Civil Rights Movement that, that, that concluded concluded in the early 60s, didn't end discrimination. It just caused it to go underground. And it gave black people in our country the legal tools with which to fight against it. So 345 years of being bullied and treated as less than equal, just like your son. 345 years of being bullied and teased until one day he fights back doesn't make it right but it might help us understand it you see for many blacks in america the scene of george floyd pleading for his breath crying out i can't breathe i can't breathe until he couldn't is a scene that doesn't happen in a vacuum It's a scene that fits within a long and sad story of racism in this country. That's the backdrop against which they see all of this. That doesn't make rioting and looting right or acceptable, but it does make us understand, begin to understand, just begin to understand some of the pain that's behind it but church not only does the gospel help us to understand the events of the last three weeks but it offers us hope in the face of them all these things that we've mentioned are a result of the fall racism police brutality rioting looting even the sin in our own heart that clouds our own judgment of how to think about this all of it's a result of the fall And it's the reason why God sent his son to earth. So this brings us to the redemptive aspect of the gospel. God sent his son Jesus Christ to be the spotless, sacrificial lamb who would take away the curse of sin and break it. See, we're not talking about a social gospel. 
Don't misunderstand me. Church, God did not send Jesus Christ to eliminate racism from the human experience. No, he sent his son to to live a perfectly righteous life and then be put to death in our place, to, to die the death that we deserve so that by faith in him we might be given his righteousness and justified. As Matt read from 2 Corinthians 5.21 earlier, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who was he who knew no sin? It was Jesus. God made Jesus who knew no sin perfectly righteous, sinless, to become sin for us, to take on him our sin so that in Christ, in faith in Christ alone, we might be given his righteousness. His righteousness gets credited to our account such that we are justified to stand before a holy God. In that sense, the curse of sin is broken for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ with respect to sin's penalty. But as we've said many times before, the grace that saves is also the grace that sanctifies. Sanctification is just a $3 seminary word that basically means to be made holy. See, when God causes us to be born again, he gives us new life in Christ. He doesn't just change our eternal destination. He begins a work of transformation in our heart and in our soul, changing us to to love the things that he loves and to care about the things that he cares about and to weep over the things that make him weep. Not only is the curse of sin broken with respect to its penalty, but also with respect to its power. We are rescued from the grip of sin And we're free to live differently in a way that is holy and acceptable to God. And so if we, prior to this, didn't see, prior to coming to faith in Christ, if we didn't see people, all people of any color, that they're made in the image of God, now, now we begin to. Because our heart begins to beat with the heart of our Father as he changes us, transforms us to look like his son Jesus. So the gospel is our only hope because it rescues us from sin's penalty and it changes us and and rescues us from sin's power and influence. But finally, the gospel is also our only hope because it will one day rescue us from sin's very presence. Church, the good news is that the gospel means that there will one day be an end to all sin, even the sin of racism and racial injustice. So what do we do? What do we do about this? What is our application to this? I'm just offered three very simple points of application for you to think through, pray through, discuss with your base group. First is to be willing to learn. Requires humility, doesn't it? Requires humility to admit that maybe our perspective doesn't give the full picture. Maybe sit down with someone who's different from you and ask them their perspective. 
and then just listen and learn. Don't trust your own experience. Don't trust your own perspective. Hold your own perspective suspect. But we be willing to learn from others. We can admit that we've come a long way with respect to racial tension in America. But we've got a long ways to go. And the last three weeks is evidence of that. Be willing to learn. Secondly, be willing to act. It can't stop with just learning. It can't stop with just becoming aware. Ask William Wilberforce in England in the turn of the century. He was not content with simply being aware of the wrongness of slavery in England. And so he did something about it. We need to be willing to act. Dehati Lewis is the pastor of Blueprint Church in downtown Atlanta. A friend, friend of mine, he, uh, we, we had the privilege as a church, New Branch, being, being a small part of helping them get started several years ago. But he notes that racial reconciliation happens in four stages. We start in ignorance. We start in ignorance. And then we move to awareness of the problem. And awareness gives way to intentionality in our actions, which ultimately leads to gospel community and racial, racial reconciliation. But here's what so op- often happens for people like myself. I move from ignorance to awareness and think I can make a beeline to racial reconciliation without going through the action. It requires intentional action on our part or else our black brothers and sisters will just assume that we're just giving lip service. Remember, 345 years of your kid being bullied, that's what our black brothers and sisters have been marinating in. And with that kind of backdrop, our words will be empty if they're not backed up by action. Tony Evans pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, says that we should consider the implications of activity on this level in four different areas. First of all, the individual level. And that's what we've primarily been talking about this morning. Looking at our own hearts, holding our own perspective suspect, and seeking to be informed on an individual level. Secondly, our family level. How are we talking about this in our homes? We can all probably point to examples of how racism is passed on from one generation to another. Certainly, a biblical concept of race can also be passed on from one generation to another. So we should start something new. And then we move from family to church, thinking about our church, your church, It only takes a glance around the room to see that we do not reflect the vision that we'll see in the new earth. And I know there's a lot of reasons for that. But I want whatever reasons I'm a part of, whatever barriers I'm bringing to the table, to be eliminated. And we should all be thinking that way. And then fourthly, to the area of government and community 
He encourages, Tony Evans encourages his church to righteously protest unrighteousness. Do we have a problem with that? Righteously protest unrighteousness. And then he, then he encourages them to build a bridge to someone different from you. Build a bridge to a family that looks different than you. And then go out together and serve another family that needs help. I think that's great advice. So we need to be willing to learn. We need to be willing to act. And then thirdly, we need to be willing to share the gospel because it truly is our only hope. It truly is our only hope. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in our leaders. Our hope is not ultimately in policies and structures. Our hope is in the gospel. As Anthony Carter, who's a pastor of East Point Church in downtown Atlanta, says, while sin remains, no justice will be enough and no peace will be lasting. And so let us share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of hope for rescue from the very curse of sin. Let's pray. God, at a time like this, I don't have the words to express the anguish and the hurt and the pain of myself and so many others. And so we lean on you, Spirit, to give utterances to our prayers. How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long will all country be mired in this? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, help us as the people of God, as your people, exiled in this world, to represent you and your truth and your word to the world around us. Let us not just get caught up in the latest fad, but let us remain true to what your word says is true and let us stand for that. And when there is injustice that rejects the truth of your word, may we stand united against it. Father, our land is broken. It is wounded. It is bleeding. It is heaving. And we ask for your healing, Lord. We ask for your healing in the world around us, but also in our own heart. God, may this not just be a few weeks of thinking intently about this, and then we go back to business as usual. May we begin to change as a country, as a church, and as a follower of Christ. Give us wisdom in this, Lord. Give us discernment. And Lord, by your grace, give us unity in the gospel. We thank you in advance for how you're going to answer these prayers and use us for your kingdom purposes. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.